Go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 24. We're going to go to chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what Paul has written in Colossians and how what he wrote to a church over 2,000 years ago blesses us still. And I pray that we would have ears to hear what your spirit has to say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Colossians. We got just a couple more sermons left to go. We've been kind of cutting a zigzag path through Colossians, jumping around to different places. And we're at this section tonight where Paul talks about his suffering. And as a minister of the gospel of King Jesus, the apostle Paul suffered greatly. As Jesus said that he would, when Jesus told Ananias to go find Paul, who at the time was the fire-breathing Saul of Tarsus, Ananias said to Jesus, I don't think that's a very good idea, Lord. I don't think, maybe you haven't heard of this Saul of Tarsus. He's really not a very nice guy. Uh, maybe I shouldn't go. And Jesus said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was called to suffer, and he did. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four to 28 is a large summary, but it's an incomplete summary. And he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul suffered greatly, and yet he opens this section of Colossians by saying that he rejoices in his suffering. 
which is amazing when you think about it. And the preacher in me has the instinct to say, well, then maybe I should proclaim how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, enables us to rejoice in our sufferings too. But then I read the rest of verse 24, and I become very confused. And maybe you do too. It says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul says he's filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And I don't know about you, but when I I see Paul saying that Christ's death lacked anything, I want to look for the big red heresy button so I can dash with my palm. What are you talking about, Paul? Didn't Paul just say that all things were created through Christ, through him and for him, and he's before all things and he holds all things together? Didn't Chad just preach two weeks ago that we are complete in Christ? There is nothing outside of him. Here, Paul seems to be saying, well, Christ's death didn't cover certain things, and so I'm stepping in to take care of the rest. It's like Paul has a Messiah complex. And so it makes me wonder what's going on, and maybe it makes you wonder the same. Well, to answer that question, we need to proceed a little bit further. So verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And this brings us back to the word mystery. We've talked about it a couple of times. And as we've said before, Paul's not working on a whodunit kind of mystery. Although if if I were to be honest, if there was a television show where Paul was a detective and he was solving crimes, I think that would be awesome. I I would absolutely watch that. But rather, a mystery is something that God has always known, but now has revealed so that we can know it too. A mystery is something that God's always known. He's never not known it, but now he's revealed it and we can know it too. Let me give you an example from literature. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we learn that the deep magic from the dawn of time states that the white witch has the right to kill every traitor, everybody who commits treachery. The emperor over the sea built this into Narnia itself at creation, and it's written on the stone table. And the white witch has the right to kill Edmund because he's a traitor. This is not a mystery. The white witch knows it, Aslan knows it, and they're explaining it to the children, but it's out in the open. It's no mystery. But Aslan gives his life for Edmund instead. And the White Witch kills Aslan in Edmund's place. After which, Aslan returns to life and the stone table is broken. How did this happen? Aslan explains, Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. This is a mystery. Even before the dawn of time, it was true that if someone innocent gave their life for a traitor, it would undo the deep magic that was written on the stone table. And only the emperor over the sea and his son Aslan knew it. Not even the white witch, who was there at the dawn of creation of Narnia. And in Aslan's resurrection, 
the mystery is revealed for everybody to know. Does that make sense? That's how mystery works. A mystery is something our triune God has always known, even before the foundation of the world. And now we get to know it, too. So what is this mystery that Paul is talking about in verse 26? He says in verse 27, To the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, there's two prongs to this mystery, and I'm going to take them in reverse order. The first is that Christ is in you, and that's the hope of glory. So take everything that Paul said in the previous section. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created before all things, and in him, all things hold together. He's the firstborn from the dead, and in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Take all that and add, and he lives in you. He lives in you. God's secret plan from the very beginning, before there was a world or before there were people who sinned, was for his son to live in and among his people. Isn't that amazing? And Christ in you is your hope of glory. Christ in you is your hope for becoming everything that God intended for you to be. Not your talents, not your upbringing, not your work ethic, not your network, not your religious devotion. Your path to glory is based on none of those things. Only the fact that the King dwells in you. Christ in you is your hope of glory. Isn't that good? I want to give you an image that I hope will make this a little bit more concrete. So June 6, 1944 is known as D-Day, right? On that day, the Allied forces launched an operation that would ultimately liberate Western Europe, defeat Nazi Germany, and end the Second World War. The forces attacked Nazi-occupied Normandy, France, by air, land, and sea. It was a bitter and bloody struggle, but the Allies prevailed. They won the territory, and once they were there and had control of the area, they then advanced throughout Western Europe, liberating captive areas all along the way. The victory at Normandy made possible many future victories, ultimately leading to the final victory. And when we put our faith in Christ, receiving his victory over death into our lives, he comes to live in us. The king dwells in us. And from the inside then, he sets up a base of operations and begins to transform our lives from the inside out. He's there and he's working and advancing through our character, transforming us from the inside out. His victory makes possible many other victories within our character, which will ultimately lead to the final victory of perfection in Christ. Amen? That is Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. The initial victory has already been won, and now we join him as he advances through our character, liberating the areas that are still captive by the evil one. And not just our lives, but also the whole world. This is a famous passage from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. 
Christ has stormed the beach at Normandy, so to speak, trampling over death by his death. And we have been liberated, transferred from the domain of darkness into his kingdom. And we're following him as he reconciles all things to himself, us and the world. Amen. So that's the first part of this mystery that Paul's talking about. Christ in you is the hope of glory. The second part of this mystery is that the Gentiles, non-Israelites, get in on the riches of Christ. Non-Israelites get to fully participate in the riches of Christ. So returning to 127, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I think it's hard for us to fully appreciate how this is such a big deal. Because as far as I know, all of us in this room are Gentiles. I apologize to any ethnic Jews who are Christians, but I assume that most of us are Gentiles. We are non-Jews. And the Jews that we know, are they probably belong to Judaism and not to Christianity. And while we might read in Romans 11 that we Gentiles are like wild olive shoots who have been grafted onto the natural Israelite tree, we don't really connect with that emotionally, probably. I think most of us don't. But most of us can probably connect with feelings of being excluded from things. We can connect with feelings of being left out, of being dismissed, of being perceived as second-class citizens or third-class citizens or no-class citizens of being seen as inferior for no other reason than maybe your race, your social status, your troubled past, your family scandals, your position of need, whatever it is. If you can identify with any of that, you can identify with Gentile Christians. Because on the one hand, Paul is proclaiming things like Ephesians 3, 6, and he says, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And on the other hand, you have Jewish Christians who are saying, what? Gentiles? No, gross, no way. Okay, they have to be circumcised, men have to be circumcised, they have to change their diet, they have to become as Jewish as possible if they're gonna come in. Never before had non-Israelites been on equal footing with the ethnic people of God, never before. And Paul says that the mystery, God's secret plan from the beginning, is that now, in Christ, they are fully on the same footing. And while this is a mystery that's now revealed, the prophets, under the Spirit's guidance, were always pointing in this direction. You get hints and guesses of it in the prophets. So I'll just give one example, Micah 4.2. Micah says, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The nations weren't allowed into the house of the God of Jacob. They couldn't even come into the courtyard. But Micah points to a day when they would be fully included because Christ has broken down in his flesh everything that created insiders and outsiders, haves and have-nots. Because as Paul says in Galatians 6, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. A new creation, that's what counts. Not ethnicity or any other potential dividing line that you can think of. 
Because if I'm devoted to the king and if you're devoted to the king, then whatever else may be true about us takes a backseat. Amen? Everything else is secondary. It does not matter compared to the primary aspect of our mutual devotion to the king. Christ did away with everything else as a barrier. Amen? Paul goes on, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So that brings us back to Paul's suffering. Remember, we started at the very beginning, filling up in his flesh what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul suffered because he proclaimed the mystery now revealed that believing Gentiles are fully in the family of God and that Christ in us is the hope of glory. He suffered for those things, which makes me ask, why would anyone want to persecute Paul for that? Why would anybody want to take Paul to task and and do the things that they did to him for that? Well, some people like their religion to be nice and tidy. They like to be nice and tidy, leave the right things, follow the rules, don't make waves. But being conformed to the character of Christ is anything but neat and tidy. It's hardly neat and tidy. A man came up to Jesus and said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? In other words, what's the formula, Jesus? What are the steps? What box still needs a check mark in my life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. The man says, which ones? Jesus goes through the second table of the commandments, and the man says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? In other words, I'm a good Jew, Jesus. I follow the rules. I believe the right things. But it doesn't seem like that's the goal. What do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. That's not neat and tidy. Following Jesus' direction would have caused massive upheaval in the young man's life. Parents and friends would have questioned, neighbors would have talked, and he would have traded the comforts of wealth for a life of poverty. That's not neat and tidy religion at all. It's much easier to find out the rules and follow them, because if you're going to be conformed to the character of Jesus, you're going to think and act in ways that will not make sense to folks whose religion has settled into do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. But maturity comes from being conformed to the character of Christ. You can go your whole life keeping the commandments and not be mature in Christ. It's hard to believe, but it's true. You can go your whole life not particularly doing anything wrong or egregious, but still be immature in Christ. What God has always purposed is for his son to live in you and to live in me so that your life is not your own, but Christ in you. As I said a couple of weeks ago, Christ in Kelly, Christ in Dawn, Christ in Patrick, Christ in Gus, Christ in Shannon. You know, when a bride is married, most often her name changes. And when we put our faith in Christ and he indwells us, you could say that we undergo a name change as well. I was Kelly Hahn, but it's more true to say that I am Christ in Kelly Hahn. That's a more true prefix for my name. 
because it reflects the glorious truth that I'm a new creation and you're a new creation. Christ in Patrick Higginbotham, Christ in Jack Grissom, and all the rest of us. We are new creations. That's what counts. But it's also hard to measure. It's hard to measure. And it doesn't allow for clean lines of who's inside and who's outside. And so Paul suffered for proclaiming this mystery. But even more, Paul suffered for proclaiming, I don't know, I can't get that word out, proclaiming that Jew and Gentile were equals in the family of God. Even though God's prophets had pointed to this, there were many Jews who just didn't want it. And that's how Paul's sufferings were filling up in his flesh what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Christ's death and resurrection was D-Day, the invasion that guaranteed forgiveness and reconciliation for all of us. That was completed work. But Paul is embroiled in the liberation that happens after that, the liberation campaign that follows, spreading the good news that God pours out his spirit on Jew and Gentile alike. And as Paul said at the beginning of the letter, the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing all over the world. And we see this at different places in Acts. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. This is happening a lot. Christ's finished work was entirely sufficient for our reconciliation to the Father, but it did not instantly reconcile the relationships on earth. Unfortunately, there are still relationships of separation on earth. And that's what Paul is laboring and suffering to see happen, is the reconciliation of those relationships on earth. He goes on in chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Knit together in love. And Paul is thinking Jew and Gentile knit together in love, and plumbing the depths of the riches of Christ together. That's why Paul's in prison. That's why he endures beatings and stonings and shipwrecks. And he keeps going insistently, and he won't stop until he's martyred, probably by the emperor Nero in the year 64 or 65. And to his dying breath, Paul says, don't settle for anything less than maturity in Christ and unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't settle for anything less than that. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Plausible arguments might persuade us to pursue religiosity instead of maturity and conformity instead of unity. Arguments like, you're already saved, and you're going to heaven when you die. You don't have to be radical about your faith. Or, you know, you really should just hang out with your own crowd. Or, you need to follow these rules to really be in. Or, if you do that, what will people say? 
They wouldn't be plausible arguments if they didn't make sense on some level. That's what makes them plausible. If they didn't have an appearance of wisdom, as Paul says elsewhere in Colossians. But you and I have to ask, do we want to settle for less than God's secret plan that's now fully out in the open for all of us to participate in? Do we want to settle for anything less than that? Do we want religiosity, measuring our relationship with God by what we do or by what we don't do? Or do we want the Christ in us life advancing in us and changing us? Do we want conformity? Wearing the religious clothes of the in-crowd, no matter how uncomfortable they are. Or do we want the unity that Christ has already accomplished for us, where there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom? And if you pick maturity and unity, you will suffer for it. We will suffer for it. We will suffer for it. Because they don't come easily. Our own habits get in the way. And even our closest relationships won't always support it. But the suffering is worth it. And it's not without joy. Remember how tonight's passage opened. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. If we're going to live in the mystery that's now revealed, we'll do the same. Amen? Let's stand for prayer.